Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Salaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about GI disease and how that impacts your life and intimacy and relationships and where to go from there. But before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. So if you have any issues with your health, please see your friendly neighborhood medical provider. And if you're having any issues with your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. So this is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So welcome, welcome, Dr. Vivian. And I'm so happy to have you on. And if you could please introduce yourself to the viewers and listeners out there. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm excited to be here. My name is Dr. Vivian Asamwa. I am a, an integrative gastroenterologist based in Katy, Texas. We practice a little bit of a different kind of gastroenterology care where we blend the both best of both worlds, right? Conventional medicine and a more holistic functional medicine approach. And I'm so happy to be here. That's fantastic. Oh, I'd love, can't wait to get into this because I'm really interested in what you do and in your functional medicine approach. I think that that's really, the holistic approach is really the way to go, especially when you deal with a lot of disorders, right? Most, I would say really everything in life really requires a holistic approach and, you know, really assessing what's going on with the patient and uh, person. So I am really curious and interested to find out, as I'm sure the listeners are, on what type of patients you typically see and um, what's going on with them. So we see uh, a patient with a variety of symptoms. I think it's more important that I talk about symptoms and rather than label the patient with a diagnosis, right? Because it always starts somewhere. So, you know, we see a lot of patients with abdominal bloating, like severe abdominal bloating, patients who are suffering with constipation. And by that, I mean, like they don't go for, you know, several days, they're skipping days, it's uncomfortable. And then, you know, patients who have like pelvic pain, 
So we mm. actually see a lot of patients who have endometriosis, yes, um, um, which is related to, you know, as, as you will be the best at explaining this, um, but can cause a lot of scarring in the lower abdomen. And that scarring can also affect the bowels. So that's why they, they come to us. And we see, you know, then we see patients with some chronic inflammation problems, inflammation of the gut, like um, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, and colitis. So that's just to give an array. But we we go down even further where we see um, people coming in. And of course, as a female gastroenterologist, we see a lot of women with hemorrhoids, anal fissures, um, rectal prolapse, where the rectal, rectum is coming out a little bit, um, and fistulas, you know, where there's a like drainage, chronic drainage tracts formed in the lower, in the anorectal area. So a big variety of different issues. Right. right. I guess the fissures, um, you know, probably can be a result of a lot of trauma, right? Or chronic disease, like you have Crohn's disease that can cause that probably also sometimes even in childbirth, you know, when those women have those fourth degree tears that go into uh, the rectum when they're having a vaginal delivery. We can see, that's absolutely true, Doc. We can see fissures from um, people who have constipation and have large bowel movements. We see fissures sometimes from people who are having anal sex. We will see fissures um, in in people who have had, you know, episiotomies and there's some weakness in that anal rectal area. So just like you said, and then with Crohn's disease as well. Yes, absolutely. That's interesting that you should mention anal sac. So what is it that you typically see? You see like um, connections when you say like fissures, it's that are the fissures, are they typically the same? type of fissures that you would see? So just for the audience that, that may not understand what we're talking, what, what is a fissure? So great. Let's, the, it's, a fissure is really just a, like a cut or a tear in the anal wow. rectal area. So it usually starts from right inside the edge of the rectum and it comes out to the anal area. So sometimes if you put your finger right there, you can actually feel exactly on which side it is, typically anterior or posterior. And, and, and the cut feels very raw. A lot of people describe it to, to think, they describe it as, I feel like I have razor blades coming out of my anus when I have a BM. It can be sharp, almost electric because it gives a nerve type of discomfort, nerve pain discomfort. So that's what a fissure is. It's a cut and over time it will heal, but it, it takes a really long time and it doesn't heal if the issue of constipation or constant trauma is still there, right? It's still ongoing. It takes it a lot longer to heal. And what what happens um, if that fissure never heals? So if the fissure, you know, we try and treat the fissure. We usually will start by saying, you know, make sure your stools are soft. Make sure you're not straining. Make sure you're not hyper-contracting that anal sphincter because that tightness in that anal sphincter is what allows it not to heal and even cause additional fissures. So make sure your stools are not soft. You're you're not hyper-contracting that anal fissure. We usually recommend a compounded cream one that typically helps relax the anal sphincter, um, usually a combination of either nitroglycerin with a lidocaine or 
um, deltaism, anything that will help relax that muscle, right? And if that doesn't work, we start, you, you know, we start talking to our colorectal surgeons about offering options like Botox injections at that anal sphincter to wow. relax the muscle. It's all about that muscle relaxing and allowing it to heal. And if if that still doesn't work, then we look at actually slicing out that fissured area to allow the mucosa, the tissue, to heal. And that's what we call a fissurectomy. Wow. I never even knew there was such a thing. That's amazing. A <laughs> fissurectomy. Wow. Fissurectomy. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just really, I guess, uh, you know, I guess I've never really thought about this too much, but this is fantastic. So, you know, for somebody that may suffer from fissures and you gave us a few of the reasons why somebody may have such, you know, what would you recommend? You said soft stools and you said, I guess for somebody maybe drinking a lot of water or do you recommend like Miralax or magnesium or something like that? To yeah, so, so working with the underlying, you know, trying to fix the underlying problem, like the root issue, if it is constipation, then you want to reverse that. Um, and so start with diet, right? Nutrition, eating lots of, you know, rich fiber, rich foods, plants, based foods, so vegetables, making sure you're getting an adequate amount of fruits and vegetables in your diet. And then just like you said, doc, hydration, right? They say we should be drinking about half of our body's weight daily. I know, That's I know a lot. 160. So I should be drinking 80. I don't even think I drank 30 today. So 30 yeah. ounces. So we'll have to keep drinking. And then, you know, a small tip, just make sure that you are not sitting on the toilet for too long. Like you just go in and you do your business. You're not straining um, and spending time straining. You're not reading or texting or, you know, looking at your phone while you're sitting on the toilet because that's all pressure that will lead to excessive straining and even hemorrhoids prolapsing down. And so those are a few little things you can do. Sits baths, which is just sitting in lukewarm water, perhaps with some Epsom salts. That's more soothing and for healing. So those are all things that we can do initially to help heal these fissures, right? I wonder if, um, you know, you're talking about not sitting too long on like the toilet and stuff like that. I wonder if for somebody that like sits at their job all day, do you think that adds to, you know, increased risk of hemorrhoids? Absolutely. So that, you know, the, the people we know will have hemorrhoids very commonly or who are will say higher risk are truck drivers truck drivers ah. and now i feel like we're all truck drivers right because we're all yeah. but truck drivers <laughs> truck drivers are sitting like on in one spot and they can't even oh, for a long period of time so i see a lot of truck drivers with hemorrhoid issues and then people who lift weights and lift heavy weights simply because of that maneuver of just comp you know contracting the abdominal wall and bearing down that bears down the hemorrhoids as well so weightlifting also associated with increased risk of hemorrhoids just like cycling long cycling you know sit you know going for really long rides and sit in that sitting position also increases your risk of hemorrhoids formation Wow, I feel like you can't win. <laughs> like you're trying to exercise. Take breaks. Take breaks. You know, as they say, everything in moderation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. That's, 
fantastic. So I am curious, actually. So let's, you know, <laughs> I've been so fascinated by this topic. Um, so, you know, what I am curious about is, you know, when you see all of patients that have issues with GI, like bloating and discomfort, and, you know, maybe it's flatulence, maybe it's, you know, a whole bunch of GI issues. Um, how does it impact their intimacy? Do you ever get into that? Do you ever talk about that? I imagine that it would affect it. You know, I, I wish you'd talk about it a little more. Women, of course, and, and men, actually, I would say men are very shy um, yeah. or don't feel comfortable about uh, having this discussion. But the one thing I will say, Doc, is that when we are dealing with, you know, we are working with women who suffer from symptoms like irritable bowel syndrome, right? Yeah. And there's a criteria called the Rome criteria about how to define irritable bowel, but irregular bowel habits, abdominal pain, bloating, going on for, for months, um, happening in flares. You know, a lot of studies um, have shown that there's a strong association with post-traumatic stress issues and even history oh. of sexual abuse in the past, right? Some oh. kind of abuse. So a lot of PTSD um, sort of precedes IBS symptoms, which is irritable bowel syndrome. So when someone has had this diagnosis, comes with the diagnosis, or you make this diagnosis, be it male or female, it's important to kind of look at the history and try and get a little bit deeper about whether there's any history of trauma. Mm. It's really important because that could be the cause of what we now call the gut-brain axis disorder, Stress. Ooh, tell me about brain access. We, we probably should have like three podcasts on. <laughs> we jumped to a whole different topic, right? So much to share. Um, so, just, you know, there's, we believe there's a connection between the gut and the brain, right? In terms of neurotransmitter feeding. And so stress and anxiety causing issues in the brain, causing, sorry, causing symptoms in the gut, because a lot of the same neurotransmitters in the brain are actually in the gut as well, like serotonin, melatonin, oh. um, heavily produced in the gut. We probably have more of those neurotransmitters than actually in the brain. So, so that's why someone who is stressed out before giving a presentation or a talk will have butterflies in their stomach. Why not butterflies in the ear or butterfly in the leg? It's in the gut because the neurotransmitters are there. And when serotonin is released, they attach to those receptors and stimulates the gut to start moving around and make it, you know, the, the motility is all perturbed because of that connection. And, and that's in part the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. It's a functional disorder. It's a motility disorder. And so any triggers from post-trauma or past traumas could potentially trigger symptoms there too, right? So interesting. Yeah. I mean, like I, you know, I know that like there are some people right before a big presentation, right? You talk about the butterflies in the stomach, but you know, actually I feel like for some people I, that's like a GI irritant, right? Whenever they get nervous, yes. then um, they have to go to the bathroom or they get yeah. diarrhea or something. It's happens. all in the guts. Yes. Same process. Right? Or they feel nauseous. Yeah. And they they feel some even vomit to a point where they actually throw up when they're super stressed out. Absolutely. So just imagine the impact of stress and anxiety and the impact of the brain on the gut is really, really significant. So going back to your question about patients with IBS and how it affects them. So even before talking about intimacy, I tr you know, after you've met a patient a couple of times and you've developed a rapport and a sense of trust, um, I think letting them know that some of these symptoms, one, could be related to 
could be, you know, exacerbated by stress and anxiety? And are there any stressors or trauma, past, present, that they would like to discuss? That's the first sort of place to, to start. And, you know, when you have IBS, it affects you in so many ways. It just affects your quality of life in so many ways that, as you know, women, and I, I won't hesitate to say men, are often, you know, um, you know, more lean or more excited to have sex when the mind is there, when they're calm, when they're, they're in the mood. But when there's a lot of stress and everything going on, most likely not really feel, they won't like feel like having sexual intercourse with their partners. So if you have IBS and you have a chronic bowel issue, chronic bloating, chronic discomfort with underlying anxiety or even trauma related to that, that can significantly affect your desire to have sex, right? Your desire to have sex and your even maybe the way you perceive it and, and enjoy having sex as well. I think it can, gut issues can certainly affect that. Wow, there's so much there, you know, and um, when you talk about patients that have experienced trauma, right, and how that trauma is exhibited, I mean, it, you can absolutely see how that would affect their desire to want to be intimate with somebody. And I guess until they were able to work through their trauma that they've had in the past, right? So with us as physicians and you, I'm sure also as a holistic physician, more so than anyone else, uh, you know, is always working to get to the root cause of the problem and not just treat their symptoms. You're trying to figure out what is going on. And so that I'm sure is really important. And so trying to, you know, guide the patient and then sending them to perhaps a therapist or somebody that can help them with their trauma that they've had in the past so that it can then improve their GI symptoms, which then will allow them to be intimate with their partner. And I love how there is that gut brain access. You know, I feel like the brain is so powerful, right? I mean, the brain is just, I mean, the brain is the brain. The brain, <laughs> but really the brain. Yeah, you know, it's a powerful quote, <laughs> but it really is. I mean, it's so, it really is so powerful when you think about it. I mean, in, in sexual medicine, we know that the brain is the biggest sex organ, mm -hmm. and um, right? And that if you are mentally not there uh, in the sense that you're not, you know, mindful during your experience, you know, whether it's sexual intimacy or emotional intimacy or whatever, um, that nothing else is going to work right because you are not present in the moment you're not being mindful and we know from studies that when a person is mindful uh when they're sexually active or in you know being intimate with their partner that that automatically will increase their arousal and their libido mm -hmm. and so i love how of course there's also you know, it only makes sense that there would be a gut brain connection yeah. Well. yeah yeah yeah, yeah, true, very true. So what else um, do you commonly see in your pain? I know there's so much that you see, but, um, you know, as it relates to, say, like intimacy and relationships, um, you know, I'm sure that if a patient is having like rectal bleeding or if they're having other issues in terms of um, irritable bowel, right, mm -hmm. that they're not going to have it. Um, are there any symptoms that you would tell a patient that, you know, if you're experiencing this symptom, this is like a red flag and to make sure you go see your provider right away. 
Absolutely, absolutely. There are symptoms that are red flag symptoms that warrant getting a procedure or at least getting a consultation and most likely getting a procedure like a colonoscopy, one of them being rectal bleeding, right? If you're seeing rectal bleeding, that is definitely a concern. Or if you notice a sudden change in your uh, poop, right? In your BMs, in your bowel movements, that is also a concern when it's sudden and you can't attribute it to anything else like, oh, I changed my diet or I started a new medication, then it's important because we always want to rule out a diagnosis of cancer. That's super mm-hmm. important. But you mm-hmm. asked another question, Doc, about what other conditions could impact um, sexual desire or even pleasure during yeah. sex or desire mm-hmm. to have sex. And I think the biggest one we see is um, inflammation in the gut, like, and so mm-hmm. I refer to our patients with Crohn's disease and colitis, where there's actually, you know, when we do a colonoscopy, we can actually see ulcers and inflammation. Oh. And remember yeah. that the gut, the colon dives deep into the pelvic area, which sits, you know, it's basically what you have is you have bladder, you have uh, uh, uterus. Uh, uterus, rectum, right? So they all sit right next to each other back to back. So something that's inflamed in one area will definitely affect the uterus and the and the vagina and, and will definitely affect the bladder wall as well. And so when our patients with Crohn's disease have colitis or ulcerative colitis, have inflammation and ulcers and, and you know, things are not moving well and they're bleeding in their colon, you can imagine why not only, um, you know, from a sense of level of discomfort, and not feeling comfortable um, having sexual intercourse because they may even have bleeding at the time of intercourse from their rectum. They may even Mm. have a bit of diarrhea and mucus come out just with the pressure of having um, that physical activity. Um, It will also cause quite a bit of pain. I mean, with we have to be in different positions. If someone is on top and applying pressure right on the abdomen, that could cause a lot of pain and even cause pain with with um, with 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 um, with sex in itself, with with actually just the insertion of the penis into the rectum, into the um, vagina itself, that could be very uncomfortable. So lower abdominal inflammation and pain in colitis um, can be very uncomfortable for for a patient. Yeah, I guess you know it's interesting because you never, at least I um, don't think about that because it's not in my you know, not something that I see every day uh, where, you know, I think you make a very good point about patients that experience Crohn's, uh, that have Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and the amount of abdominal pain that they experience and the bloating and the pressure, right? And just like what you said with uh, different positions in um, when somebody's sexually intimate that it could definitely affect it. And they would have to probably navigate that, right? They probably have to choose or find positions that wouldn't irritate their abdomen, that wouldn't irritate their bowels. Um, and so that would be the, you know, the least discomfort, discomfort for them. Absolutely. So really interesting. Um, and I, you know, didn't even think about the fact that, you know, there could be pressure from the vagina onto the rectum Right. And that, um, right, you could have some of like, you know, discharge from the rectum Absolutely. come out. And, yes, and how, you know, that might be very embarrassing for right. the patient. That's that uncomfortable. Might, right. Absolutely. Right. Right. And just they may not want to be in that type of situation, always fearing what may happen. 
So really yeah. good point. Um, I'd like for you to discuss if you could just a little bit about, I know because you're a functional medicine doctor, just a little bit about uh, the microbiome of the colon and how you as a functional doctor, you know, make recommendations to your patients that may be experiencing bloating or discomfort uh, with certain foods and things like that. Okay, so the, the, the microbiome is a whole, <laughs> It's yeah, that's another podcast. podcast. Yeah, that's <laughs> another podcast. We just created the fourth podcast right now. The <laughs> microbiome is a whole topic. But I do want to talk about certain things that, certain foods that could exacerbate bloating. And then mm -hmm. I can touch on certain foods that could increase inflammation. So if you okay. know you have any of these conditions, what are the foods that you want to avoid? And what are the mm. foods that you want to eat more of, right? Mm. And so in terms of bloating, and I'll you know relate this to maybe the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, but we can see this in inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's as well. You want to avoid foods that are really hard to digest. Um, and these are going to be essentially legumes, right? So lentils, chickpeas, um, beans, um, are really hard to digest and typically cause more bloating. You know, generally, if you eat a bunch of beans, you are you feel bloated, even a healthy person, right? If you eat too much, you're going to feel bloated. Now, someone who already suffers from IBS and bloating will feel a ton of bloating. So there's mm. actually a therapeutic food plan we often recommend to our patients called the low FODMAP diet. And with that diet, what you're trying to do is avoid foods that are high in FODMAP. And FODMAP foods are a range, actually. It's like fructo-oligosaccharides and polyols. They're types of foods that result in, when broken down, can release quite a bit of gas into the system. So you want to hear something called the low FODMAP, and it is F-O-D-M-A-P-S, low FODMAP diet, that helps reduce bloating. And I often mm. tell patients, you know, so stay away from the foods that are on the list. Yeah. So that will generally reduce symptoms. And in terms of inflammation, when our patients have, you know, Crohn's, colitis, and they're suffering from discomfort and a lot of inflammation, you know, simple things as just reducing the intake of dairy helps, right? Because we know dairy is very pro-inflammatory, as well as sugar and gluten-based mm. foods. So not eliminating completely, but certainly reducing because we know that those are definitely pro-inflammatory foods that can affect the gut. And so until you really have healed the gut and resolved the issue and gotten the adequate treatment for your Crohn's or IBD, those are foods that you can minimize. And mm. when it comes to how to strengthen your microbiome and get give your microbiome the right type of nutrients to feed the right type of bacteria that are helpful for your gut. I always recommend that patients really um, try and focus on a rich plant-based diet. So as much fiber as possible. Fiber is really the key word when you're trying to improve your microbiome. Fiber feeds the good bacteria and helps them thrive. And bacteria in your gut is responsible for breaking down nutrients, making micronutrients, helping with motility, strengthening the immune system, so many things. So anything yeah. you can do to improve um, the commensal, like the good bacteria in your gut, um, you definitely want to do. And that would be, you know, definitely increasing fiber through plant-based foods and uh, really avoiding processed foods. And 
And when we say processed foods, we mean anything that you have to go run through a drive-by, drive-through to get. If you have to run through a drive-through to pick up the order, for the most part, it's going to be fast food and it's going to be processed, right? And so avoiding processed foods, anything that comes in packages and bags and, and things that could be sitting on a shelf for many, many years, that's all processed foods. Those are foods you want to try and minimize from your diet. I hope that was helpful. It was a lot. Yes, it was so helpful. I was trying to memorize all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Again, you can listen to the Muslim sex podcast over and over and over again. That's right, to get that information. So you had said to avoid foods that were, um, aside from being processed, but you talked about uh, dairy and sugar, inflammatory. um, And what was the third one? I missed that. Gluten, gluten, gluten. Gluten is found in flour. Yes, flour, wheat. Yes, yes, yes. But then how do we increase the fiber? I guess maybe just take like plants and vegetables. Yes, absolutely. Lots of fruits, lots of vegetables. Um, And, you know, they say we should be eating two servings of fruits and vegetables at every meal. So either fruit or vegetables. So for breakfast, you want to have an apple and then you want to have, you're laughing. So did I. I was like, really? Uh, what did I eat today? <laughs> what did I eat? I better go eat up. So once every, well, like an apple and then you'll have like, you know, an omelet with spinach in it or with mushroom. Boom, check. You've done your two servings. And then for lunch, the same thing. For dinner, the same thing. You know, we love our carbs right here in the States and we probably eat way too much. So, um, just backing off and having a nice diversity, making sure you're including veggies in your meals. Yeah, so two servings, I have to remember that. So two servings of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, so like a fruit or a vegetable, that's two. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, lots to remember. This is such great information. I hope everybody's taking notes. (laughs) I'm doing the podcast, but I'll go back and take a listen and then I'll take notes. This is fantastic. Um, yes, Alan is taking notes as well. <laughs> That's great. Uh, for the audience that doesn't know who Alex uh, Alan is, Alan is the podcast producer, so he's he's also taking notes. But Thank um, you, Alan. This is- yes, that's right, Alan. Hopefully, Alan can put him in the show notes, which would be so helpful. Yes. Um, so tell me more. I just want to keep talking to you. This is such great information. So we talked about intimacy. We talked about how GI disorder, not disorders, but GI issues can affect intimacy. We talked uh, a little bit about the microbiome. Um, any more pearls that you would like to give our listeners? We talked about increasing fiber through fruits and vegetables, not necessarily through gluten or wheat, which is what I think of. I think of bread, I think of whole grain. What about whole grain bread? Not good? No, no. So no food is bad except processed foods. I I don't think we should label any food as bad because that stigmatizes food and then people start having food restrictions, unnecessary food restrictions that they don't need to have. You just kind uh, kind of have to connect with your body and really understand how your body reacts to certain foods, you know, just mm-hmm. by, by connecting and observing your symptoms. So if you don't have issues with inflammation, like, and you just want to be healthy, I think the key again, I think is moderation, right? It's a well-balanced yeah. diet, diet with a bit of everything. So whole grains, not an issue at all. Whole wheat bread, if, if that's, you have no issue with it, 
absolutely not an issue. So I'm not telling everyone to avoid gluten, dairy, and sugar, but I am telling people who have chronic inflammation um, oh. and are, are eating perhaps a, a lot of these foods, that these foods, a lot of carbs, a lot of bread, a lot of dairy, a lot of sugar, yes does not enrich in your microbiome. So plant-based fiber is definitely the way to go. Yeah, mm, it's definitely yeah. the way to go in, in, that, in that respect, yeah. yeah. Something else to add, I, 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 you know, we haven't talked about fistulas and this may, may have Tell me. come up in your, in conversation. So fistulas are little tracks that form um, between sort of even the vaginal wall, it can even form with the, urinary area, as well as the anorectal area. Sometimes it starts with a little abscess and, and it could just be a benign abscess and an abscess is a pus pocket, right? Or sometimes it could be related to a chronic inflammatory state like our patients with Crohn's disease who develop these fistulas. And important to know something that I think is very obvious to me as a gastroenterologist is that uh, fistula, when you're treating fistulas, sometimes you have to um, clean them out and make sure they continue to drain. So you place mm. these little catheters called cetons, and these oh. cetons allow the fistulas to stay a little bit open and continue to drain out whatever pus so that they can heal from the inside out. So as a you know as as a female gastroenterologist, I see a lot of women who have Crohn's disease who've had mm. fistulas and they have these little cetons hanging out of their anal rectal area. And I can only imagine that during sexual intercourse, that can also be uncomfortable. That is yeah. probably not pleasant. If you don't know the partner that you're having intercourse with, they may not have seen this before and wonder why you have these little strings and cords hanging out. Um, and then if you have a partner who's familiar, they understand how to kind of maneuver and move away the seton so you don't you know, mess with them and remove them. Um, to allow for penetration. So there are actually some physical things. There's some, um, you know, physical things that we insert in our patients with anorectal fistulas and anorectal disease that could actually affect um, sexual intercourse itself, simply because not, not necessarily cause pain, but maybe a little uncomfortable for some people. And I think I want to highlight that because some people in your audience may have fistulas and have cetons, please and have to deal with this, you know, or explain it to their partner as to what this is for. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm so glad you bring it up because, you know, there are definitely a lot of people that, that deal with chronic diseases and, you know, we just don't know uh, what they're going through and how they have to navigate their relationships based off of their disease, right? Yeah. And how comfortable they feel with their own bodies. There may be some body image issues there. Mm -hmm. They may, know, not um, desire to be with anyone because of all of these issues with uh, fistulas and tracts and having surgery and, Absolutely. right, they may need recurrent surgery for their fissures. Absolutely. I know that's something um, that I haven't touched on, which is something I think really important are uh, fissures and fistulas, actually fistulas rather, that develop, that can uh, develop in uh, after childbirth, after right? Birth. And um, fistulas such as we know that you can get those rectal fistulas if they had um, a laceration or a tear in their vaginal rectal area and then it didn't heal properly. I know a woman that had the, a fourth degree tear, mm -hmm. uh, which for those people uh, listening that do not know what that is, that is a, 
um, a tear in your vaginal area, right? The perineum that then goes and extends into the rectum. So -hmm. that's a fourth degree tear. And what happens is that, you know, as OBGYNs, we heal it, we repair it. However, if it doesn't repair properly, then it can form a connection between the vagina and the rectum. And I had a friend who actually had to have three, four surgeries before finally, yes, here in the US, it's not even like it was, you know, overseas or anything like that, but it was here. And she had to keep going back. And uh, again, it's, you know, something to talk about uh, physicians not believing their patients, right? Like they were like, no, it's fine. It looks fine. And she's like, no, there is a connection. There is a problem that's going on. So um, she did have to have a few surgeries before that was finally fixed. And that was horrifying for her, you wow. know, that she had to keep going through that. And we know that um, when I was a few years ago, I spoke to a urogynecologist and I had her actually come and lecture. And I was part of this interfaith group that we were collecting supplies to um, send over to, you know, um, underdeveloped countries uh, for like birthing, birthing kits. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, they we would give them like uh, supplies and things like that. So anyways, we had a urogynecologist come and talk about fistulas that she had seen when she went to uh, Africa in women that had protracted labor. So they, these poor women would have, because the hospitals were so far away from where they lived, that once they went into labor, the oftentimes they'd have to walk for a day or so to get to the closest hospital that then, you know, if they were in labor that long and that baby was stuck in that pelvis, you know, you can imagine that that pressure of that head, sure, that right. head right. crushing the tissue mm-hmm. that then leads to, you know, formation of that fistula happening between the rectum and the vagina. Yeah. And then, you know, by the time that they would even reach the hospital, that fetus would be dead mm-hmm. uh, because it was stuck. Mm-hmm. And then aside from the trauma of having delivering a dead infant, mm-hmm. they'd have trauma of these fistulas and then they couldn't go back to their own communities because you know they would either if they had like a urinary fistula they would leak urine or if they had a rectal fistula they would leak stool and you know they were ostracized and it was just you know very very sad but right so like just what you said you know that there are a lot of issues with um, fistulas that we don't talk about and how that impacts relationships and a person's life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the last thing I want to highlight, because I really want to make sure that we are relating to everyone who may be listening to the podcast. As a gastroenterologist, of course, my main job is to prevent colorectal cancer, right? Yes. And so I perform a lot of colonoscopies. But sometimes, and, and lady, uh, and I want the audience to remember that colonoscopy screening, we start now at age 45, no more at age 50. Make sure that if you're 45 and up, this is fully covered by your insurance, get screened. Because, you know, colon cancer, for some reason, appears to be on the rise, especially mm. in our younger population, 35 and up, very, very much higher incidence than we've ever seen it. But, you know, I'm thinking back at a patient um, and who's now become a dear friend whom we diagnosed her colon cancer at the age of 42. And it was quite aggressive. It was a stage four when we diagnosed it. And the, you know, the surgeons actually, the colorectal surgeon's opinion at that time because of the location of the cancer was um, to divert, um, do a diverting ostomy. So she has an ostomy bag. And what is since we're talking about intimacy issues and how that can affect 
um, sexual intercourse. I think it's important. We just talked about, you know, what physical things do we insert in people's bodies that make intimacy difficult? And even the, the question of broaching the conversation with your partner as to what is this? A big one, I think that's a big stigma that we're really trying to remove as a taboo in, in gastroenterology and just oncology and cancer patients altogether is that ostomy bag. It, it is a, a completely different orifice for stool to be coming from your abdomen into a bag. It is unnatural. Uh, it's very, very hard in terms of just the amount of, you know, it's it's traumatic for a lot of people. Um, it, 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 it takes away a certain, I would say, even sense of identity, you know, in terms of who am I today and what's going on. And, and we're talking about chronic disease and, and this is something you have to live with chronically for a lot of people. And so that ostomy bag um, is, is a big stigma for a lot of people. And some people actually don't wanna have partners again. So this friend of mine got her ostomy bag, which in some ways the surgery saved her life. And, you know, I was talking to her a couple of weeks ago and she goes, you know, Viv, I don't want to have a partner again. I just don't see how I can even broach the conversation of this ostomy bag with a new partner because she wasn't married and, you know, she didn't have a steady um, uh, significant other. So she was still in the dating pool. And I, I was just crushed, you know, I was just crushed. So I, I shared a lot of resources. There's so many great platforms and support groups. Uh, women empowering groups and just general men and women empowering groups about how to live with your ostomy. And I shared that with her. And on that platform, she was able to meet another lady, a really sassy 60 year old who was also single and still dating and had her ostomy. And she talked about how she just, she made, she didn't let the ostomy back um, define who she was and define her life. She just lived. She just lived and she continued to live. And, you know, she continues to coach and mentor my friend. And I hope that eventually she also decides that, you know, she has a second chance of life and she should use it wholeheartedly to 100% and just live, you know. So that ostomy bag is tough. That's, you know, thank you so much for bringing that up because I think that that is something that we forget about. And um, you are so right that you know, patients or people that um, have to live with ostomy bags, you know, that's a, a different type of disability that we don't really, it's not really a disability, but it, you know, it's, it's, it affects their body image, right? How they see themselves and how they um, identify as a person. And, you know, I think that that is something that it's really important that we talk about more often so that it, the conversation is normalized so that they don't feel as if they are an anomaly, right? That there's something wrong with them. And uh, of course, it's not anything that they did, you know, it's, um, and like you said, they do have a second chance at life. So, you know, it would be, it would be great for them to also find a partner, somebody that shares and that understands their experience and so that they're not made to feel as if there's something wrong with them. So I think it's so important that you brought that up and I appreciate that. So thank you for doing that. Um, it's very important that we talk about it and normalize that conversation. So any other pearls that you wanna leave us with before we end this podcast and schedule our next one? <laughs> I think I, I think I'm tapped out in terms of this topic. I have really tried to think of all GI issues from mouth right. to anus. I mean, yes, we could go on. We could talk about halitosis, but you know what? Let's save that for yeah. <laughs> we will save that. All right, awesome. Well, 
Thank you so much, Dr. Asimov, for coming on and telling us everything GI related. And it was such a great conversation and so awesome for you to discuss all these topics and gosh, so many great topics that we covered. So thank you so much. So for somebody that is listening and watching and wondering, wow, she is awesome. I wish you were I wish you were in New York. I definitely would come to you. <laughs> but for we somebody that New York is too, just here. chilling, not doing gastroenterology. <laughs> well, I guess when you do come out here, we can hang out then. Absolutely. Um, but so for somebody that's listening and wondering like, hey, you know, I'd love to get in touch with her. How can I get in touch with you? So how can patients um, get in touch with you, those that are interested, just to kind of find out what you do and learn more about the microbiome and what they can do to help their uh, inflammation? Absolutely. How can I get in touch with you? We, so I actually do see patients virtually as well. We do a lot of telehealth in our funct integrative functional program. Uh, but you can find me on vivianasamwa.com. That's my website. And the same social media handle on all platforms, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. I'd love to invite your audience to my tribe so your tribe can meet my tribe. And we are on a platform on Facebook called The Natural Gut Relief. And mm. it's a private Facebook group where we talk about everything natural, plants, natural supplements, herbs, natural techniques um, that can be used to find gut relief or heal chronic gut issues, right? Mm -hmm. and so the platform is called Natural Gut Relief. We share a lot of resources. We also have um, invited speakers talking about different topics every Thursday. So a wealth of information and a wealth of resources. And I'd love to meet your tribe there. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And it was a fantastic conversation. So thank you so much. And well, I am done here and it's been real and really intimate. And again, this was not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you have any questions about your gut health or really anything about your health, please see your friendly neighborhood medical doctor. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends. And thanks for listening. Bye.